The two things that shape the parental brain are hormones and experience. And we talk a lot about hormones during pregnancy, how there's these steep climbs in progesterone and estrogen and, and an increase in oxytocin, particularly at the end of pregnancy and to initiate labor and lactation. And we talk a lot about how those hormones shape a pregnant body and sustain a pregnancy and then launch us into birth and, and breastfeeding. We don't talk a whole lot about what those things are doing to our brains. Welcome to War Stories from the Womb. This is a show that shares true experiences of getting pregnant, being pregnant, and giving birth to help shift the common cultural narrative away from the glossy depictions of this enormous transition you can find on all kinds of media to a more realistic one. It also celebrates the incredible resilience and strength it takes to create another person and release that new person from your body into the world. I'm your host, Paulette Kamanika. I'm a writer and an economist and the mother of two girls. And boy, did I struggle with this transition. Here in episode 100 of the podcast, it seems fitting that Chelsea Conaboy shares so many insights about how parenting changes parents' brains. She describes research on these brain changes and what they might mean and talks about how our repeated efforts to check on our newborns, even before we really know how to care for them, is a reflection of some of these changes independent of mood disorders. Listening to her and reading her book paints a really stark picture that contrasts the stories we tell about postpartum and what the science actually shows. In part two of my conversation, we pick up where we left off last week. Chelsea was talking about how evolutionary theory originally proposed by Darwin was used to sell this idea of maternal instinct. And she also talks about the social implications of that effort. You can find these in her book, Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. Here she is. Scientists had already started to look at instincts in other species and and what was it that drove what they perceived as these innate behaviors that were the same across the species that didn't seem to be learned. And so um, in the early part of the 20th century, researchers started to look at human instincts and they <laughs> created these lists, early psychologists created these lists of, of human behaviors that they described as instincts that were really kind of laughable, the instinct to climb trees or the instincts to be afraid of strange men or strange animals or like, oh, I don't know. They were really the long lists. And one of them was the parental instinct, which of course was defined as stronger in women than in men. And and that's based you know, on, I looked out my window and that's what I saw. That's, that's not, not based on rigorous scientific study. Yeah. That's based on, let us describe what we know in the society around us about how yeah. humans behave and figure out which ones belong in this list that we declare to be instinctual. And, you know, William McDougall wrote about maternal instinct being stronger than any other instinct that there is, even stronger than fear itself. But William McDougall was also a really notable racist and eugenicist. And he also wrote about how maternal instinct was not stronger than education, how it declined with a person's education. And, you know, he was writing this in the context of what he saw as a need to preserve gender roles and limit women's education and also protect institutions that discouraged 
birth control and divorce and anything that would undo this role as woman, as as nurturer and natural mother. Because he said that those societies in which there is the strongest maternal instinct will grow and thrive and those where it declines will suffer. And he was writing this all in the context of this sort of hysteria around immigration in the United States and a fear that white supremacy would be overridden essentially by growing immigrant populations. Um, I, mean, so all, was- all I think when I hear that is what an insecure small person, exactly. like, which I'm sure is not how it was received in the day. Right. And as small, except that it worked, right? Like, yeah. It was actually quite effective and really pioneering problematic in her own ways, but pioneering psychologist named Lita Hollingworth wrote in an essay that was published in 1916. She called maternal instinct a cheap device for social control. She said that that it was an attempt to use the same tools that compel soldiers to go to war were being used to compel women, especially white women, to have more babies. And she basically was saying, you're trying to make it look easy and we know it's not. You're you're showing us galleries hung full of Madonna, images of the Madonna and, and you know, the glorification of, of mothering while you also hide the obscenely high maternal mortality rates. And you make us think that this is our destiny and our only destiny and we're serving your national aggrandizement is what she said. And some, too, too at some true. point- yeah. And that was a hundred years ago, right? And it's still very much the same. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I am amazed that she was so on point and that that speech could still be given today, especially in the context of Roe v. Wade and all that. Yeah. And falling birth rates. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So on the one hand, we're very much connected to our ancestors. On the other hand, we need to do better. Right. <laughs> this, this can't be the way we we go on. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about rewiring the brain, how, how pregnancy and birth and parenthood rewires the brain. And I, this is one quote I pulled out. You're right. Becoming a parent changes our brain functionally and structurally in ways that shape our physical and mental health over the remainder of our lifespan. Scientists have found such significant change in gestational mothers by far the most studied group that they now recognize new motherhood as a major developmental stage of life. That doesn't sound easy. Yeah. So one of the key messages of this book is that it's not automatic. It's not this switch that flips when we become parents. It is a process and it it requires time and patience and exposure to our babies. So the two things that shape the parental brain are hormones and uh, experience. And we talk a lot about hormones during pregnancy, how there's these steep climbs in progesterone and estrogen and and an increase in oxytocin, particularly at the end of pregnancy and to initiate labor and lactation. And we talk a lot about how those hormones shape a pregnant body and sustain a pregnancy and then launch us into birth and, and breastfeeding. We don't talk a whole lot about what those things are doing to our brains. And the research indicates that they are essentially priming our brains to be more plastic than at any point in our adult lives or more moldable, more changeable to be essentially ready to receive our babies who are themselves this incredibly powerful stimuli for the adult brain. 
And so then our brains are primed by these hormones. And then over time, as we work to take care of these tiny, vulnerable, nonverbal creatures, we are shaped by them and by that experience. And obviously, pregnancy is a really powerful mechanism for change. It also happens in other non-gestational parents where they experience hormonal changes and they certainly experience the reality of what it means to be exposed to a baby over time, to have the responsibility of, and the intense learning that's required of that. And that ultimately shapes the brain in, in very similar ways. Not only do we not talk about that process a whole lot, but when we do talk about it or acknowledge it, we often talk about it in the context of postpartum mood and anxiety disorders or the baby blues, which is defined as this kind of sadness or unsettling feelings that happen in those first couple of weeks postpartum. And you just kind of have to wait it out and and your hormones will return to reasonable levels and you'll be okay. (laughs) And The reality is that hormonal systems never return exactly to what they were before we had babies and nor do our brains. There is no kind of waiting for the waters to settle so that we can be the people we were before. We're changed by this process and the change that happens in this time has been compared is on, on par in terms of the scope and scale of the change with what happens during adolescence. And we know this by looking at structural studies that look at structural changes in the brain. So this is another quote that I pulled, which I found fascinating in the book. You're talking about how Elseline Hoxima and her team looked at the anatomy of the brain before and after pregnancy. Their study, which took five years to complete, included brain scans that they compared from couples hoping to become parents and first-time parents. Here's what they found. Comparing brain scans before and after pregnancy the researchers found significant reduction in gray matter volume in new mother's brains, particularly in regions involved in social cognition. The volume changes were distinct enough that a computer algorithm could clearly sort the women according to whether they'd had a baby. Then skipping ahead a little, you write, most interesting of all, those possible refinements in mothers seem to stick. It's easy to jump to the conclusion that loss of brain matter must be bad, because those costs are what people most often think of, if they think of anything at all in relation to the brain and parenting. That was originally understood by some people reading that data. Somehow women had lost this capacity, but when they compared brain scans of teenage girls going through puberty and women going through pregnancy and birth, they're very similar in the ways that they're responding to this dramatic change in circumstance. And I thought, what genius to compare it to a time when no one thinks teenagers are becoming stupid through puberty, right? right? But exactly. so I would love to not look at this through the lens of misogyny, but I don't know how else to look at it. Yeah. I mean, if we talk at all about maternal brain, the maternal brain, we usually are talking about mommy brain, right? This idea that we are compromised by our babies, that they are sucking the brain cells from us. And 
And that is really pervasive. I mean, I never, I told friends or acquaintances, really capable people, mothers themselves, that I was writing a book about the maternal brain or the parental brain. They were like, oh, you know, how you're going to explain to me why I can never find my keys in the morning or whatever. That's our knee jerk reaction. And those studies that you're referring to came from a group of researchers who were based in Spain at the time who were studying neuroplasticity, but in completely different contexts. And all of them were young women who were starting to think about becoming mothers themselves and thought, well, wonder if we could study what happens to women's brains <laughs> through this period of time. We have a sense from the animal literature that this is a really important plastic time for the brain. And so they designed this study that was basically without any funding <laughs> at first. They just wanted to pursue this question on their own. And they followed what ended up being 25 women over time from before they were ever pregnant to immediately postpartum. And then a subset of those they followed at two years out and at six years out. And they found these volume losses that mostly with some changes persisted over that full six years. And the first study that they published was just a comparison of the pre-pregnancy and post-pregnancy brain. And the takeaway was significant volume loss, especially across a network in the brain that's described as a theory of mind network or the brain regions we use to understand other people's emotional states and reflect them in ourselves central to our social cognition and really important when you're caring for a baby who can't tell you what they need. And so they published this work and it got a lot of attention. And they said, even their colleagues in neuroscience said to them things like, oh, all this volume loss. That's why I'm so forgetful. That's why I can't keep up anymore. And they were like, no, 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 that's not it. And they saw this as as a fine tuning, a pruning of synapses that aren't needed anymore and a strengthening of the ones that are, which is how we understand volume loss that happens during adolescence. And so they did this right genius comparison with these teenage brains and found a very similar degree of volume loss and also a very similar morphometric pattern across the cortex. Yeah, the pattern across the cortex. And they're using that and continue to work on this idea that to show that this is not a neurodegenerative <laughs> stage of life, it is one of growth and adaptation. Totally amazing. And I'm going to fly this by you just to see what your reaction is. So I wrote a piece about about empty nesting. My youngest just left. And I had seen all these studies on how your brain is changed by the, the caretaking. And I say in the piece, I'm not a neuroscientist. This is conjecture. But that that's actually the unofficial end of the postpartum period because the object that your brain has become entirely attached to has now left. I talk with my kids often, but but it's not the same as having them living with them, having them in person, having mm -hmm. that connection constantly, having that dopamine hit whenever you are right. connecting yeah. all the time. Do you think that's nuts or that's a possibility? I was saying that's why empty nesting is so hard if you are really enmeshed with your kids because- Oh, yeah. I, and I didn't realize that there might be a neurological basis for that feeling. Yeah. 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 I mean, so there are one researcher in particular, there's this kind of thread in the, in the parental brain research that says, you know, these systems that we use to understand, to read the cues from our own body, to help decide how to distribute our energy and how to achieve the basic needs that we, for survival, <laughs> are essentially 
when we have a baby extended to now include our children. So they're the same, the same systems we use to understand ourselves and to build narratives around who we are and what we need are sort of used to now do that for our children too. And that's a really intense process when they're babies because they can't do those things for themselves. But it doesn't mean that it goes away as those babies grow. In fact, part of the point, I think, of the adaptive parental brain is this flexibility to grow that connection and change it over time as our children grow, which in those early days, they're changing hour by hour. And then, you know, those changes slow some, but become more complex, especially more complex in a social context. And And so this research is really young. We pretty much know nothing about what the parental brain is doing through any of those older years. I mean, nothing. We know nothing. (laughs) And despite the fact that the large majority of us are parents and we may be parents to multiple children, and this is a fundamental relationship in human life. And it's so much of how we define ourselves and how we shape our society, (laughs) but we've spent so little attention investigating it at the neural level, even while we know a whole lot about the brains of business leaders and athletes and gamblers. <laughs> Those are things that social neuroscience spend a, a lot of time on, but we really, we just haven't gotten it yet for parents. And I think it's a fascinating question. What happens when that that circle that you've created in neurally <laughs> in a way of of understanding kind of becomes open as they go out into the world. I don't, we don't have a good understanding of that. All the stuff that we do have, it's, is just a set of studies have just come out in recent years, looking at the brains of older adults, these big data banks in the UK and in Australia of brain imaging. Researchers have taken thousands of people's data and compared parents and non-parents. And these are of older adults in their 50s and 60s and beyond. And they've used brain imaging and computer modeling essentially to test lots of data points across these brains and found that the brains of parents are what researchers have described as younger looking and it fits with the idea that this is not a neurodegenerative experience. In fact, it may even be protective against aging in the long run. And it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Parenting is a socially complex task that is always changing and presenting us with new challenges. And we talk to people all the time about how if you want to keep your brain healthy, you need to stay engaged with challenging tasks, do the crosswords, make new friends, take up a new hobby. And parenting requires us to do new things all the time and to grapple with, again, these complex, socially complex problems. And so it would make sense that for certain parents that that's a preservative kind of role. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So this is an amazing book. And I'm wondering now that you know all this, what would you have told younger you to have made your first experience smoother, easier, or more reflective of maybe change your expectation or something. Yeah. I would have, have told her that it's okay, (laughs) that this takes time. And we didn't get a whole lot into this, but one of the pieces of this 
science is that in that early time when your brain is being primed by the hormones and and also by your babies, that vigilance is a, a very normal part of the process that our brains are really compelling us to look at our babies through changes in brain regions that are related to attention and meaning making and, and vigilance that it's really compelling us to go back again and again, even when we really don't have the practical skills for caring for our babies to, to go back and figure out how. And so I would have told her, this is part of it. You need to take care of yourself and get the support that you need, but also this is part of the process of, of your brain adapting to this new role. And Ultimately, when I did find the science, it totally shifted things for me. I started to see that experience as productive, as not a sign that I was broken or missing something or a bad mother in, in any way. It was part of a process that was helping me to become the, the mother that my baby needed me to be. And so I would say to have patience with that to know that I'll make mistakes and that those mistakes are also part of the process of learning. And yeah, that I also just to give myself some more grace to know that societal expectations of mothers are based on faulty premises and even lies. And so I could make my own way and not pay so much attention to those. Yeah, I think the story you tell yourself about how you're doing and what it's supposed to look like is so profound, which is why everyone, mothers and fathers, should read this book mm -hmm. to get a better sense of, of what's really going on. I mean, it is completely shit marketing to suggest the, the switch will be flipped. Mm -hmm. You know, you will fall in love with your baby instantly. Mm -hmm. If it's hard for you, you're fucking it up somehow. Mm -hmm. All of that is just dead wrong. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> but we use it as a as a measuring stick to measure ourselves against yeah. what should be. And even if we have an understanding that those things are not true, I think when I was pregnant, I didn't expect, oh, my maternal instinct will, will switch on once the baby arrives. I kind of knew that that was a bogus idea. And yet it was so ingrained in <laughs> so much of how we think about mothers and how we talk to mothers and it still shaped the expectations that I did hold for myself. So yeah, I think we need a total reframing over and to really recognize this as a developmental stage of life and one that is hard by nature. Distress is an integral part of, of this process, one that, one that takes time and one in which it is entirely normal to require a lot of support. Yeah, that, yeah, that is, that is, that's well said. And it's something that we recognize with teenagers, right? With adolescents, we know this is a time that is hard for them, that their risk of mental illness is much higher. And even those who don't develop any clinical symptoms, they're just, they are going to struggle. They're going to struggle to find themselves through it. We know that it's something that sometimes we just need to give them time and space to go through and and we know that they need support in doing it. And new parenthood is also a developmental stage of life and requires those same things. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I hope people listening will pick up the book because I have done a lot of research and I was familiar with many of the topics and you just presented them in a way that I thought, oh, if only I had mm. read this before. And I didn't, uh. I didn't come with that many expectations and it was still really hard. It yeah. was still a really yeah. hard process. <laughs> yeah. 
Chelsea, thanks so much for coming on the show and for writing this amazing book. You can really change a lot of people's lives with this book by giving them a better understanding of what they're stepping into when they choose to become parents. I really enjoyed our conversation and I know I've been coy about this, but I really enjoyed the book and learned so much from it. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Paulette. I'm so grateful to Chelsea for taking the time to walk us through just a few of the findings from her really powerful book. I want to reiterate one thing she mentioned, and I'll pull another quote from the book. Chelsea writes, researchers studying the neurobiology of parents have begun documenting the many ways having a child reorganizes the brain, altering the neural feedback loops that dictate how we react to the world around us, how we read and respond to other people, and how we regulate our own emotions. Becoming a parent changes our brain, functionally and structurally, in ways that shape our physical and mental health over the remainder of our lifespan. Scientists have found such significant change in gestational mothers, by far the most studied group, that they now recognize new motherhood as a major developmental stage of life. And they've begun mapping how in all parents who engage in caring for their children, no matter their path to parenthood, the brain is changed by the intensity of that experience and the hormonal shifts that accompany it. We are, in a very real sense, remade by parenthood. I can't get over the description of parenthood as a major developmental stage of life. If I had that idea in my head when I brought my first baby home from the hospital, I imagine that I would have had much more grace with myself for the learning process in front of me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with friends so that they too might find some space and kindness in the ways they talk to themselves about this major developmental stage. Next week, we hear from the mother of five who lives with her children on a boat and a fantastic midwife who tries to demystify some of the hospital practices we may encounter in birth. <laughs>